Uncensored episodes of the Art History Babes podcast are made possible by support from our lovely listeners via Patreon. Head over to patreon.com slash arthistorybabes to help keep the Art History Babes going and for access to bonus content. From Welcome to the podcast. I'm Corey. I'm Natalie. I'm Ginny. And I'm Jen. And we are the Art History Babes. And today we're talking about Mr. Ai Weiwei. Ai Weiwei! He has a great name. (laughs) I love that name. It's a fantastic name. What's been going on? I had a very scrumptious smoked turkey at my Thanksgiving (laughs) dinner this year. (laughs) Hung out with family. What about y'all? Oh, uh, <laughs> I had two Thanksgivings, and it was cool, it was tiring, I was very full. Two's a lot. And that was about that. But I had smoked turkey too. My uncle smoked it in a giant uh, barrel that looked like a Ooh. trash can, but it was delicious. I think that's nice. the way to go with that particular fowl, is smoking <laughs> it. It's delicious. <laughs> I did not have turkey. On Thanksgiving. You're I, a rebel. I don't know. What did we even eat? I don't know. I don't remember. I think we had like stir fry or something. <laughs> um, I would much rather have that than... <laughs> I'm not a big fan of typical Thanksgiving I'm foods. I'm not either. Honestly. I really am not, um, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I I love the idea of eating a lot, but I'm not huge. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> like, typical Thanksgiving foods, except like mashed potatoes. So Thanksgiving was chill. We have a Black Friday tradition that we do. You and the bow? Me and the bow. And on Black Friday, we wear all black and do some kind of fun adventure that doesn't typically involve shopping. And this year, we went to a exhibit at the San Diego Contemporary Museum of Art. Oh. And it was sick. It was it was a whole I I know I snapchatted oh. you this. It was a whole Chicano <laughs> exhibit. I was oh. going crazy. She was sending me these snaps and I was just so upset about not being in San Diego. Yeah, it, it was a great exhibit. Um I mean it's a smaller space. Well they have two and we went to like the one downtown and then there's another one different part of town but they're both smaller spaces but it was a, a an entire like modern contemporary chicano art exhibit some really great stuff there was one whole uh piece that was it was a very like multi-dimensional thing there was a film and there were a lot of there were photos and there were prints that you could take basically what it was is this artist he traveled around and and followed the original borderline of mexico and he would put out these silver obelisks, like where oh, the yeah the, you sent that to yeah, me too. Yeah, he would put out these silver obelisks on where the border used to be before, like we took California. And, yeah, yeah, but before we we took it all, basically. Right. Yeah. He um would place obelisks and take these really beautiful pictures of like this big silver obelisk, like against whatever background happened to be there or whatever landscape is really cool. Did he um, say why he chose obelisks? I don't know if I... I mean, we didn't watch too much of the film. Yeah. I don't know if I saw some anything directly about it, but I mean, I my first instinct was that 
obviously had a lot to do with power. Civil power. Yeah, yeah for sure. That's that's my assumption. I don't know 100% yeah. for sure. And then there was also, um, they had a whole bunch of pieces from... Cheech Marin. Yes, Cheech. Yeah, from his personal collection. A lot of people don't know this. Cheech Marin from, from, yes. from the, <laughs> the wonderful, amazing revolutionary duo <laughs> Cheech and Chong. <laughs> Cheech Marin has invested much of his money in collecting Mexican and Chicano art. And so a lot, yeah, a lot of is. the work from the this exhibit apparently was from his personal collection. The main display of the stuff from Cheech's collection was done like salon style. Which was really cool. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah, it was really neat. And they, there were some great, great work. That is and so awesome. Yeah. Was, I, yeah, I read about, I didn't even know this. I read about it in Juxtapose like a year ago that Cheech has this incredible, vast collection of Chicano and Mexican art. And I was like, good on you, yeah, dude. If I real. had money from making silly movies, <laughs> I would absolutely be buying art with that. Yeah. Um, no, it was an amazing exhibit. Then after that, we went to the San Diego Maritime Museum. That also looked very cool. Looked at some old boats from the 19th century. I mean, it was a great day. (laughs) I was like living vicariously through your snaps. It looked so fun. It was. It was really fun. It was beautiful because it's always beautiful in San Diego. Um, yeah. Great place. It was nice. Kind of piggybacking off of our last episode, which was all about our election feels that mm-hmm. we were having, mm-hmm. um, we are going to be talking about one of our favorite political artists, who is a, I think, a great influence for maybe what should uh, should be coming up in the art world in mm-hmm. the future. I hope so. I hope so. Anyways, Mr. Ai Weiwei. God, yes. that guy. He's so, so good. He is so good. So, gonna start off with Ginny. Yes. Some of his, his early years. The early years. So, Ai Weiwei lived in New York City, and this was when he was a younger man, and it was predominantly in the 1980s, and that's kind of the section that I'm going to be talking about the most. And so, he moved to New York City from Beijing, and I have this great quote from him talking about his experience in New York when he first transitioned there. Before I came to New York, I only knew this was the heart of capitalism, the most sinful city. Of course, I am crazy excited to go since I hate communists. I thought that's a place I would love to go, but I knew nothing about New York. All of my impressions came from Mark Twain and Walt Whitman. Aww. <laughs> Love so, him. I know, isn't that sweet? <laughs> um, and he was only 25 when he moved to New York City, and he lived there for nine years. And when he was in New York, he was exposed to artists like Keith Haring and Allen Ginsberg. I never know if it's Ginsberg or Ginsberg. It's Ginsberg. I'm always inclined to say Ginsberg because my name is Ginny. I'm like, Ginsberg. Um, <laughs> Ellen Ginsberg. <laughs> he is my friend. Um, <laughs> Anyways, um, 
So IYA was in the U.S. when the youth demonstrations for increased personal liberties took place in Tiananmen Square in 1989, which was a really big deal for um, kind of the Chinese political stage, but also just kind of the greater political stage at the time. And even though he was not in China when this took place, it was still greatly influential to his work and his work as being highly political and politically charged. What he did the vast majority of his work in New York City was a series of black and white photos. There were about 10,000. So he really was producing quite a bit over the nine year period that he was in New York City. And these black and white photos, uh, we'll post some of them. <laughs> One of them are really great. Some of them have Ai Weiwei in them. Others show different Chinese immigrants living in New York City in apartments and walking throughout New York City and kind of showing the experience of him and people that he knew who were uh, living in New York City at the time. There are several self-portraits of him, and we'll post a few of those. And he also did a profile of Duchamp, which he made with sunflower seeds and a wire coat hanger. And he was very influenced by Duchamp and carried around a book about Duchamp and this profile that he made of Duchamp, which again, we'll post on the website, was kind of carried over into his later works because he did uh, an installation at the Tate Modern in London where they uh, constructed porcelain sunflower seeds that were integrated into this larger exhibit that he had there. And so this is kind of his experience in America and all of these sort of photo series that he made that on the one hand were portraying how or portraying his own experience in New York City as he called it like this kind of embodiment of like capitalism and sort of sin but he was excited about that but on the flip side he was still very involved and aware of kind of the political climate of China at the time and would later return to China. But this is just to kind of give an introduction into um, Ai Weiwei's early years and those early years that took place in New York City where a lot of other um, contemporary artists that we know of uh, were working at the same time. We will pass it over to Natalie, who's going to talk about some of his probably most known work yeah I was notable or what's yeah. they're up there yeah <laughs> one, of them, one of them's probably the most the other one's kind of okay so in 1995 he created his piece the dropping of the han dynasty urn the actual artwork is a triptych of silver gelatin prints but it's also almost a performance piece because the triptych represents him literally dropping this urn that was a Neolithic vase. It was They were used <clears throat> in burial purposes to provide the deceased with food and drink in the afterlife. The triptych shows him holding the vase, and in the second one, he's letting go of the vase, and in the third photograph, the vase is breaking on the ground. So it's a combination of the actual printed triptych and almost a performance of the breaking of mm. the vase, which is a little controversial depending on how you interpret value and ownership. So he's bringing 
kind of into the conversation a lot of these issues. I mean, he owned the vase at the time that he broke it, so... I, I mean, I don't know. I feel like we should open this up into a conversation because... <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, it, it belonged to him in the sense that he bought it. Yes. Correct? At a flea market. That's where he At a flea market. bought... From my understanding, that is where he got the majority, if not all, of the vases that he uses in works. At a so, flea market. Yeah, because he was, um... His family, like, I think his father was really into antiquing. It should also be noted that until the 20th century, these vases were almost considered, like, I don't want to say cursed, but taboo in the way that people wouldn't want to handle them or keep them as sacred objects because they were associated with death in a negative way. Why? Was it because they were used in a, a funerary context? They were seen as bad luck. So handling them or keeping them in collections was like seen they were they were viewed as objects that could bring bad luck so i just okay i'm literally just asking because i'm so curious and i don't know anything about this so these bases were acquired by iowa from flea markets but they're genuine han dynasty vases that's been the one that he broke was han dynasty the vases in total all of the ones that he's used in various works Uh uh-huh range from five five thousand to seven thousand years ago so okay and so the popular lore then is that they are somehow bad luck they were considered to be bad luck up until the 20th century. So beginning okay. in the 20th century is when people started seeing them as somewhat valuable. That was where the cultural shift happened. Okay. Where they went from being something that was seen as bad luck that people wouldn't really want to have to something that should be collected and preserved. And not dropped. dropped. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's kind of the context. And... He's really bringing a lot of these ideas to the forefront about destruction. He's worked with other ceramic vases. You know, again, we're dealing to with 5,000, 7,000-year-old vases. Probably his most famous painted one, he painted the Coca-Cola symbol onto it. And he's painted other ones with different paints. So he's used, like, auto paint. He's used more, like, um, like wall paint. And he's really dealing with ideas of destruction, obviously, with the dropping of the vase, trivializing with the Coca-Cola. But that also gets into ideas of value because Coca-Cola is not a small company. Um, It is very much a capitalist company that brings in a lot of money. So you could get into a debate of, and I mean, I don't think that most people would think this way inherently, but are you raising the value by putting such a valuable, valuable, exactly onto this vase? There's this weird kind of like, it's like a double edged sword of people valuing old things, but not really taking the time to understand them or like get into touch with the history of them. Whereas everyone knows Coca-Cola. So it's like, well, I mean, it's playing off of Andy Warhol and the consumerist capitalist trap. It's like... But he's doing it in such a, like, 
a way that irks people so much more because people just yeah. want to inherently believe that the age of these objects mm-hmm. makes them valuable. Like, I'm sure there were people who got upset about this who don't even know when the Han Dynasty Or know why they're... Yeah, exactly. Like, when it <laughs> right. is yeah. you know. Well, that's really interesting, this, like, juxtaposition of the two, this, like, reverence to these old dynasties that are so disconnected from what the reality is for a 20th slash 21st century Chinese person Mm -hmm. living in China. Mm -hmm. And also putting this image that recalls to us this capitalistic dynasty, Mm -hmm. such as Mm Coca-Cola, which for like Americans, for instance, we have this sort of love affair with Coca-Cola. We grew up with those stupid polar bear <laughs> commercials and the Santa Claus with the Coca-Cola mm-hmm. going like, Ooh, you know? Yeah. I'm just saying, there's so many levels. There to are, what yeah. And, oh, 100%. And back 100%. to what Jenny was saying with him coming from communism and trying to push away from that and then the capitalist lore and, like you, and his infatuation with people like Andy Warhol, who he mm-hmm. very much directly references and talks about in interviews and such with Duchamp and the same idea these are ready-made objects he Mm -hmm. especially with the the dropping of the Han Dynasty urn he's not well he is changing it by dropping it but he's not using traditional methods of art making that people would associate so it it Mm -hmm. falls into the realm of ready-made which he comes to again and again in his work And then, as Jen was saying, so the whole idea of the 20th century Chinese citizen, and that is the time when these urns started to retain value in the eyes of the society. Maybe not society in general, but collection culture in China. Well, there is an elite culture in China. As much as the Chinese are communist, there's still in every communist society, there's a small group of elite who hold power. It's the same idea as here. It's like art retains value. Art becomes valuable when the quote unquote art world says it is valuable. Mm -hmm. Like someone needs to kind of impose value on it. Mm -hmm. So these vases, you know, they become something of value and something to be collected by this community in China in the 20th century. And in that it's hearkening back to a perceived like golden age and that's why they became valuable. And But it also, the destruction of the vase connects to the futurists, who we've talked about in previous episodes. Ah, and yes. yes uh, Corey can help me out with this, because she was, <laughs> she was filling me in on this connection, which is a very, very interesting take. Okay, so this whole idea... Of futurism, obviously, we're talking about like World War Two era, and it was a very common kind of notion that you know things are going to be better in the future. So, I mean, if you go back throughout history, you have this really interesting push and pull of like things were better in the past, things will be better in the future. Yes. Like similar conversations are happening in the like 20th century everywhere it's just like remember the 90s member member <laughs> <laughs> member jurassic park <laughs> if you 
if you aren't up to date on South Park, like you oh need to be. Oh my god, it. watch it. Because member berries are brilliant. Um, anyways, there's kind of this push and pull of like, you know, life will be better in the future and life was better in the past and like this idealization of you know, both of these time frames, and it's obviously something we're still de dealing with today. But the futurists were very much of this camp that like, the future is where everything's at, everything's gonna be better in the future. So there's this whole pushback in communist China, kind of against the past in some ways, where it was a lot of destruction happened to these kind of artifacts to things that represented the past of China because they were moving past it like they were we were done with the past we're moving into the future. So while the dropping of the Han Dynasty urn is bringing attention to this maybe like overvaluation of things from the past, it is also bringing attention to the fact that historical artifact had been and continues to be destroyed without anyone even, you know, passing a second glance regularly within that culture and many other cultures. So it is, yeah, as Natalie said, it was, it's kind of a double-edged sword. It's, it's bringing up two kind of contradicting, but at the same time, very much interrelated ideas about history and culture and what that means. <clears throat> well, you um, know, the Romans did that during the advent of Roman Orthodox Christianity, the destruction of pagan idols. Yeah. yeah. So icons... Images, artifacts from the past can be dangerous yes. when yeah. you're trying to, let's say, instill Christianity into the masses or instill communist values. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is a perfect segue for <laughs> an actual Ai Weiwei interview where he is asked about his destruction of the Han Dynasty vase. Does anyone want to like play role play with me? Like I'll role play with you. <laughs> okay. Jen is Tim Marlowe and I am Ai Weiwei. Take one. <laughs> People think there's an ambivalence in the way you use historical fragments. On one level, it can be argued that you're reconstructing the past. You're using historical detritus to remake something for the present and the future. And other works like dropping a Han Dynasty urn or dust to dust, you're being willfully destructive. Are those critical works or are they provocations or a mixture of the two? You could say it's neither. It's just this guy being bored. To me, it's not so subversive. It's just a silly act. Boys will be boys. Oof. So you admit there's a silly, childish, playful, but also destructive streak in all of this? Not really destructive. It's just an attitude. And yet, as a collector, you seem to have a very respectful, you might even say reverential, attitude to the past in certain ways. If you collect these exquisite objects, therefore you paint over or temporarily or permanently destroy historical fragments. That is a contradiction, isn't it? You call it being destroyed. I'm not like the Taliban. Their hatred destroys things. I think I change the form. It's just a different way to interpret the form. One summer, a very good collector and expert in Chinese furniture said when he saw my furniture, oh, that's the moment you make me really understand Chinese furniture. So I think in my interpretations, I still pose a very philosophical question about how and why those forms have been respected and for what reason. I'm still questioning those very essential aesthetic judgments. 
where those judgments come from and what and in what sense it has followed the tradition of making that pot. I wouldn't call it being destroyed. It just has another life, you know. It's a different way of looking at it. So beginning in 2011, um, Iowa Way conceived an idea to make zodiac heads so the title is zodiac heads or circle of animals either or i think they're interchangeable he's addressing a few things here the most base level is the idea of chinese zodiac signs becoming as globally recognized as western astrology for example we all, I think, know our years, our animals. Yeah. I, yes. I am the yeah. rooster or cock, as it's more commonly known. Ooh. <laughs> what are no you, Corey? Um, I'm actually looking at the uh, the picture I have on my Instagram from this exhibit, actually, of the dragon. Ooh. I am here of the dragon. And I'm a snake. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, just this, it's it's fun, you know, if you've ever eaten a Chinese (laughs) restaurant. It's fun, guys. It's fun. Obviously, it's a lot more Natalie, meaningful. That's in problematic. Actual, I know it's problematic. Exactly. That was, guys. That was an example. Problematic. I mean that. No, it's it's fun in the sense that for us in California, we know this because if you sit in a Chinese restaurant, you have a placemat that has these around the edge of it. That's it's generally, true. Yeah, and I'm not trying to trivialize it. No, Obviously, it's, there's it's, a lot more meaning and history and going on behind it but that is what Ai Weiwei is addressing is the way that it has been trivialized in western society so they are bronze heads of the 12 zodiac animals and there are appropriations of originals which were made by Giuseppe Castiglione an Italian artist who was brought he was an Italian Jesuit who was brought to China to produce these sculptures for the Garden of Perfect Brightness. And this is actually a place that Ai Weiwei would go to sketch or draw when he was younger. It holds a personal place in his heart. I'm speaking for him. He didn't say that. <laughs> I'm ad-libbing. I'm sure he feels that way. <laughs> Similarly. I right? hope he feels that way. But the appropriations that he produces, it is obviously of the 12 animals, but differences include things like his personal biography, Chinese mythology and history, um, relations between China and Europe, authenticity. So again, the idea of the original versus the copy. These are copies of original sculptures, but sculptures made for China by a European. There's a lot of dialogue going on here and references to art business. So he's bringing in a lot of moving What's the expression? Moving wheels? Moving Moving parts? parts. (laughs) Moving parts. Wheels move. Wheel parts. (laughs) Moving parts. There's a lot (laughs) going on here. But these, around the time that Ai Weiwei created his version, the originals or some of the originals were up for auction in London, and they were going for bank. So he's creating these at a time when Europe is... I mean, and not all of Europe, obviously, but the European art market is making money off of something that they took from China. And China, at the same time, is wanting these sculptures back. And so this is a narrative that we see time and time again with different countries 
And China is different in the fact that it wasn't colonized. Usually we see this in situations where a country has been colonized by another country and then they lose a lot of their cultural heritage, i.e. art in most situations. So this is slightly different, but it's the same issue. These sculptures belong to China and now they are being sold in London and who has the rights? I mean, uh, yeah. so <laughs> Ai Weiwei is in his ever interesting way, making a commentary about it, trying to start a dialogue. This is an exhibit that has moved all over the world, not even just the United States. It was in our uh, neighboring town of Sacramento at the Crocker Art Museum, where Corey was able to see it. It began in New York, actually, at the um, Pulitzer Fountain, and it's still moving. It's going to be moving through next year. I don't know if it will continue after that. It could. Another kind of side note interesting feature of this exhibit is that he did not create the sculptures. He hired craftsmen and artists to create them. If you watch the lovely documentary, Never Sorry, I Will Never Sorry, he um, has one of the artisans working on a sculpture in the documentary. And that, again, alludes back to people like Andy Warhol and his factory and kind of this mass production of art. And Ai Weiwei is in no way ashamed of this. He is the first to talk about his art as being very conceptual and that he doesn't feel like he has to have a hand in the creating of it. And yeah. Bravo. Yeah. Bye, guys. Up next is Corey. Um, All right. So I'm going to get into Ai Weiwei's, really his history um, as a political reactionary and some of the really intensely political work he has done out speaking against the Chinese government. Natalie mentioned the documentary Never Sorry, which is available on Netflix. You should all check it out. It's fantastic. Sponsor us, Netflix. <laughs> That'd be awesome. I know, right? We make bank. <laughs> Ai Weiwei, he's very much known as this reactionary political artist. He is very well known for his uh, use of the middle finger. This is a visual element that is very much associated with him. And it comes back to this series called Study of Perspective that was created from 1995 to 2011. And then again in 2014, and he has since kind of added to it this year. And this series is a series of photographs that have Ai Weiwei flipping off significant landmarks. So it's, it's taken from his perspective, and then his left arm is extended outward, and you see the landmark in the background, and you can see his his um, middle finger. The proverbial bird. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the My first... My favorite of the birds. The first and perhaps most significant of, of the series um, was taken in Tiananmen Square in uh, 1995. Mm. So, obviously... He is saying some stuff to the Chinese government about the Chinese government. Likewise, this work is, is very important. It kind of harkens back to his interest in um, Duchampian ideas and aesthetics because you have a play on words going on. Study of perspective. Obviously, he's in the images, he's dealing with linear perspective. Like, he's, they're landscapes. He's dealing with linear perspective. He's got his, like, arm extending outward toward the focal point. And at the same time you're dealing with personal perspectives, opinions about 
political things or people in power. So it's kind of a double meaning there. Obviously, these are controversial because why wouldn't they be? <laughs> um, <laughs> An image of flipping off Tiananmen Square yeah. is going to elicit some sort of reaction. Feeling. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, there's he flips off uh, the Eiffel Tower. Like, I mean, so many. And the Eiffel Tower looks like a giant middle finger. It does. So it's technically <laughs> returning the favor. Most recently, though, he posted this on his Instagram. He flipped off Trump Tower. Ah, which love it. is fantastic. Love you so much, Ai Weiwei. Um, Ai Weiwei. Ai Weiwei. We um, like, he obviously has always been a political artist. As Ginny talked about before his images in New York of protests he was interested in in political protest he was interested in the speaking up against government he always has been interestingly his father was also an artist and a famous poet who um, was imprisoned for political activism it's very much you know something that's in his blood and is very important to him so he's always been political but not quite to a point where he was, you know, upsetting authorities until about 2008. That's when that really started to become a big thing with the Beijing Olympics. So in 2008, Ai Weiwei is a very well-known artist at this point. We have already had dropping of the Han Dynasty urn. We've had some very prominent works by him. And he is asked to design the stadium for the 2008 Beijing Olympics. And he designs what is known as the bird's nest, which is the centerpiece of the Olympic Games. But interestingly, after he designs this, he speaks out publicly against the Olympic Games. And this is very much um, in reaction to the displacement and kind of mistreatment of citizens that was going on in Beijing at the time to essentially make way for the games and to quote unquote mm -hmm. clean things up people were pushed from uh. their homes they were very much mistreated which is unfortunately exactly what was just seen in brazil with yeah. the olympic games literally every olympics yeah. has had the same story of pushing out the derelict who are usually the people who are living in the areas that they want to host these events are the poorest people, the hungriest people, the most disenfranchised. They get just so easily swept aside and then they bring in the monumental building. They have the Olympics and then after it's a wasteland. Yeah, it's awful and, and it's way too common. But I would weigh our boy, he publicly spoke out against the games, which he was the first prominent figure to do this. Like, this was not, this was very unheard of. Like, yeah. so it was a big deal, especially considering he designed the thing. Like, <laughs> so it was like, obviously there were um, authorities that weren't exactly excited about that. So this was kind of the beginning of him um, ruffling feathers, I guess. Then also in 2008, the devastating Sichuan earthquake occurred mm -hmm. in which over or approximately 70,000 people died. It was an absolutely horrible natural disaster. Obviously, people, including Ai Weiwei, were very much affected by it. And then Ai Weiwei ended up becoming personally invested in this whole thing in relation to the fact that... Um, a lot of people died, a lot of children died because of what Ai Weiwei 
has kind of deemed bad like construction like mm. a lot of schools were poorly built um there was a lot of deaths happened in this earthquake unfortunately because of bad construction of buildings and bad construction of public buildings so Ai Weiwei becomes very invested in this very quick and he he feels as he's a very he's very concerned with transparency transparency in the government he thinks is super important as we all do I think um obviously it, it's it's very necessary so he gets really invested in this project he starts collecting names of uh student victims of the earthquake as well as their birth dates mm. it's not an easy process like finding these names and the authorities did not cooperate they did not want him doing this they didn't understand why he was doing this like there was not a lot of cooperation so he starts collecting the names of these victims he ends up with 5212 names and birthdays and then on the one year anniversary of the earthquake he posts it on his blog the blog was shut down oh. by the government and then surveillance cameras were installed in his studio so the government wasn't happy that he did this and i mean could I, you imagine having surveillance in your studio yeah it's oh, crazy oh my God. Yeah. i just think of like the studio artists that we know and could you imagine down. if they had surveillance in their <laughs> studios getting a little too personal ah! this becomes a extensive project of his and in 2009 he does an installation called remembering on the facade of the Haus der Kunst in Munich. It is a really extensive, large installation. It consists of 9,000 backpacks, which this comes from when he visited the wreckage of these schools. He found these oh. piles of backpacks from these children. Oh very sad, very heartbreaking. So this installation, 9,000 backpacks, um, they're yellow, red, 9, white. 9,000? They're yellow, red, white, and green, and against like a blue background, and they're arranged to read, she lived happily on this earth for seven years in Chinese characters, which is an excerpt from a letter written by the parents of one of the victims of the earthquake. So obviously it's to raise awareness, it's to, it's an homage to, to these victims, it's to honor them. But Chinese government, not too fond of any of this. They don't want any of this happening. It makes me, like, so emotional. Yeah, it's, it's really it's sad. Really messed up. And it's really seven. And so the Chinese government's not particularly fond of Ai Weiwei's subversion or questioning of their authority. He ends up being assaulted by a police officer. And this is all documented in that, like, this is all in that documentary. Dang. He's assaulted by a police officer to the point that it lands him in the hospital. Jesus. Like, it's, yeah, it's not cool, which just fuels the fire. <laughs> and he files a complaint against the government, against police. He also very quickly after filmed uh, a video called F*** You Motherland <laughs> in which wow. it has people of all nationalities in their native tongues like saying F*** You Motherland and it ends with him standing there in Chinese saying F*** You Motherland. Ah! On the documentary there's I think it's like an art historian who worked with him and she said when like the video came out she sat there and watched it and she was like don't say it don't do it don't say it they're not gonna let you back in and then he said it and she just like like went numb <laughs> like um uh... so obviously I mean you know if we're looking at this from a 
Western perspective, like that's, you know, maybe not great, but like not gonna get you put in jail. Yeah. Um, but it is something that could potentially get you put in jail in a communist government. He shortly thereafter did the Sunflower Seeds installation at the Tate Modern that Ginny talked about before. He did it in 2010. This is one of my favorite pieces of his, but unfortunately I don't really have the time to go in depth about it, but it consisted of 100 million ceramic hand-painted sunflower seeds. There is a really good episode of this other art history podcast called State of the Arts. They don't really post very often, but they did a Ai Weiwei episode a couple years back, mm-hmm. and they go into a really in-depth analysis of sunflower seeds. So I suggest you listen to that to kind of get a full understanding of that piece because it's really cool interactive like you could walk over these seeds and I mean can we talk about it like a little bit or is well it... they were created by many different artists right like it was yeah it was a and I so it's like a multiple yeah. artist well exhibit. it was no, no it's I Weiwei. it was I Weiwei in his studio a lot of his art is created by other people but in the same vein of someone like Andy Warhol where the conception gotcha. comes so many from of these him people gotcha. workshops yeah yeah it's just like Jeff Koons and again yeah. very transparent about it that he doesn't yeah that detracts from no his. that's that's really interesting In the documentary, he says something really great at one point, and you might remember better than me, Corey, but something about, like, it's like he's almost not taking ownership. He's saying, like, I come up with the idea, and then other people execute it. But, like, in a way that he's almost giving them rights. Like, they create it. Like, he's not trying to own all of the things. He's just proud of his ideas as artwork. I love that. Yeah. That's really It is, and it's, it's like the next step of someone like Andy Warhol is to say, like, as an artist, I come up with ideas and conceptions, and other people execute them. But with yeah. Sunflower Seeds, I mean, he he was, right? Like, he did it, too. It was a whole workshop of people sitting there painting these ceramic yeah. right. sunflower seeds. And Individual he, And seeds. he made them alongside the rest of his studio. Yeah. And it's this vast installation of 100 million little sunflower seeds, and you were allowed to walk on it and play in it, and... Um, there's there's a lot of interesting um, cultural meaning behind using sunflower seeds and the fact that they were ceramic and the way the work played out. But like I said, I encourage you to listen to that State of the Arts episode because they go into it really in depth. So that was in 2010. And then in 2011 was basically when started getting like really crazy his shanghai studio was demolished by authorities um they just came in and knocked it down and i mean it's interesting because obviously he built the bird's nest for the olympics like he was not always an enemy of the state you know it's so it's this very like quick change in feeling towards him and his shanghai studio was demolished and then in April, on April 3rd, 2011, uh, Ai Weiwei disappears. He was detained while trying to fly out of Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And this led to the Free Ai Weiwei Movement, which was kind of a worldwide backlash to him being unfairly detained. People all over, especially in the arts, were kind of speaking out against it and saying, let, let him go. Um, he was held for 81 days and he was guarded at all times. 
100% of the time. Ugh. They never left him unguarded. And finally, in June twenty June 22nd, 2011, he was released on, they claimed, the government claimed that he had been held on tax evasion. <laughs> I, A likely story. Yeah. I mean, believe what you will, I guess. He ended up being charged a lofty tax bill, I think, from the Chinese government, but whatever. Um, <laughs> um, that year, he was named Art Review Magazine's mo uh, Most Powerful Artist of 2011. Um, and then when he was interviewed about this, he kind of talked about how he didn't necessarily feel very powerful at that time. And then he yeah. said in the interview, it's my favorite Ai Weiwei quote of all time. He said, maybe being powerful means to be fragile. Aww. So great. Um, that speaks to me. I know. <laughs> I'm like, yes, I know what you mean. <laughs> right? I remember actually watching. I can take a page from his book. I remember watching um, Never Sorry, and we watched it in my undergrad art theory class. That was the first time I saw it. And I remember that quote, and I just like, I was like, yes, like that speaks to my soul on like a very real level. So Ai Weiwei, he was released in June 22nd, 2011, but he was basically on this probation, this pretty intense probation, and he was not given his passport back from the Chinese government until 2015. Four years. <laughs> not allowed to leave China. Oh. Um, and they watched him very closely. So he was a little, I mean, he was still making, which I'm going to get into here in a second, he was still making work and stuff, but he was a little more, a uh, little less reactionary in those four years for obvious reasons. I would be too. Yeah, I think he was trying to chill out a little bit. He's got a little baby son, probably just like trying to he's take care of his so Isn't he cute? He's so, cute. Um, so he would man's. Yeah, he is a little man. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so he's chilling out a little bit. But yeah, was not allowed to leave China again until 2015. And likewise, his name was, was censored on the internet in China. It's not uh, easy to find his stuff in China. Oh, People man. do, but it's not particularly easy. Yes, right. Obviously, uh, there's some issues there with what he was saying or what he was trying to prove. In 2014, he did an exhibit at Alcatraz. San Francisco Yay. was so cool. <laughs> I have the little the book here. So he was a, um, approached by one of the the curators of the exhibit, who is also the head of an arts foundation in in San Francisco, about this potential idea, and he absolutely loved it for obvious reasons. I think. I mean, I weigh way Alcatraz detainment. Boom boom prison. Uh, you know, Alcatraz is, is known, like, it is the prison that no one can escape from. It's the prison on an island. Also, when I get eaten by sharks. <laughs> like, All that's, those bay sharks. That is what There's sharks in that. I know. Bay sharks. Bay sharks. I, I almost feel like that doesn't even need to be explained. I wait, wait, at Alcatraz, like, of course, you know, like. Yeah. The second I heard about it, I was like, that's brilliant, and I will be there. Brilliant! Um, <laughs> and it opened, it opened in 2014. I have a quote from his artist statement that I just think is perfect for both this and for our current times, politically, artistically, what have you. I hope at large will help build understanding and awareness about our history and current conditions. Today, the whole world is still struggling for freedom, and there is nothing ahead but more struggle. 
Many of my friends are still in jail for utterly nonsensical reasons, and the power that put them there has no respect for the law. In such a situation, only art can reveal the deep inner voice of every individual with no concern for political borders, nationality, race, or religion. This exhibition could not come at a better time. Though, when one is fighting for freedom, any time is the right time. Freedom is meant to be collectively protected and shared. You are protecting not only yourself, but also others fighting for the same cause. Yes. Word. He set up this exhibit at Alcatraz, but uh, during this time frame, he was not allowed to leave China. So he did this all long distance, which is not an easy thing to do when you're like an installation artist. That sounds (laughs) stress inducing. (laughs) I'm stressed out just thinking about that. So he sets up this exhibit. I went and saw it October of 2014, so right after it opened. And it was like a really interesting experience. I was actually I was actually out here for my campus visit for Oh That's for when there. I met Corey. No. Yeah, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. Not, not yet. yet. No, no, this is this is before that. <laughs> and did my can like I was doing canvas visits and stuff and yeah so went to the exhibit at Alcatraz and it was like a really interesting experience because if you've ever just been to Alcatraz to do like the tour that's what a lot of people were there for they even let the like opening thing where the dude like talks to you before you like go into Alcatraz he like asked who was there for Ai Weiwei and you know we all raised our hands And it wasn't very many people. Like, a lot of people were just there for the fact that it was Alcatraz, and they had no idea who Ai Weiwei was. So they were there to do the Alcatraz thing and learn about its history and, you know, Al Capone and all that stuff. Were you able to notice? Because I've never done a tour of Alcatraz just on my own. Like, were you able to notice people reacting to Ai Weiwei that weren't there to see it? Like, yes. do you think it was still able to move people even though that wasn't their intention? Yeah, and that was kind of the interesting thing because I actually have done an Alcatraz tour, like, mm-hmm. by itself, and also Ai Weiwei exhibit was the second time I had been to Alcatraz. And you could... Def, I mean, because it was it was so incorporated with Alcatraz. You couldn't, they weren't separate. It was a yeah. part of Alcatraz. So if you wanted to see all of Alcatraz, you were seeing the exhibit. But did, but did people seem moved by it? Like, did they seem to... Some did and some didn't. Yeah. Um, and it, it was interesting because I think some people weren't there for Ai Weiwei, but it was like this little bonus. So it was a very weird interconnection of people who were there for the art to see it, to see it in the space. And also people who were just there to learn about Al Capone and they ended up with some contemporary art you know which is like if you're not an art person can be a lot to take in Mm -hmm. um so it it was interesting it was a really interesting mix of people some of the different exhibits are different parts of the exhibition one of them titled with wind was kind of the first thing you saw when you walked in. And it was this big, like, uh, Chinese dragon that was made out of these, like, hexagonal kites. And it was very elaborate. And it was beautiful. And it was very just, like, in-your-face and stunning. Like, it took up this whole space. It moved in and out of this big main space. And there was also these quotes that had to do with freedom and detainment and these different kind of issues. And one of the quotes was, I think I have actually 
have a picture of it on my Instagram as well. One of the quotes is by Ai Weiwei himself, and it was like, every one of us is a potential convict. Mm. Yeah. So kind of playing with these notions of who's a convict, who gets to be detained, you know, power, yeah. authority, yeah. freedom. Then there was Trace, which it consisted of 170 portraits of people that have been imprisoned or exiled due to beliefs and affiliations with different causes. And they were portraits that were made out of Legos, which is a technique that I've always been using more recently. They're very reminiscent of Andy Warhol, if you look at them. They kind of have the same, yeah, the pop, the kind of layers and colors and use of bright colors. But interestingly, they're made out of Legos, which kind of makes them more lighthearted. But at the same time, it's such a heavy topic that it's interesting. And yeah, and you have all these people and their names were on the portrait. So you can, you know, look up why they were detained and things like that. My favorite is Dante Alighieri, for the record. Just so y'all know. Just so you guys know, the, the Dante one is my favorite. We'll put that one up on our pictures. Dante. Dante. Dante Alighieri. And then this one was really cool. This one, and there were there were a few other aspects of it that I'm, I'm not talking about. Like, the whole exhibition was just really smart. But then there was um, Stay Tuned which was a sound installation. And it was really great because this one I think was probably the most incorporated with the rest of Alcatraz because they took 12 cells from like the block of cells that you walk through. If you do the Alcatraz tour, you walk through and you can get like the headset and, you know, learn about who was in what cell and blah, 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 blah. And they blocked off 12 cells and in each cell um, you could go inside and there was a stool and you would sit on the stool in the cell and there was sound being projected into the cell and only one person could be in each cell at a time obviously and I mean other people could come in but usually it was just like one person at a time and you'd go in and you'd sit and the sound in the cell was either like a speech or poetry or music by people that have been detained for their creative expression and it was really moving because it was all these different like voices and different languages from different cultures and it was like you got to sit there and experience you know this piece of art basically that 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 person created when and was subsequently detained for and one of the most interesting it was the one at the very end actually you sat down and it was uh pussy riot it was music by pussy riot which is super relevant because they were speaking out against our friend Vladimir Putin. Who, Putin. who our friend. Our friend. Our good friend. Our good buddy. <laughs> who has it's been proven by the CIA affected our election. Ooh. Oh my god. <laughs> I didn't even know. You didn't know that yet? Oh man. No, I mean I our just our good like... friend Vladimir did not tell you that. <laughs> I'm just I'm Get joking. Jennifer. I laid my hand in this election. Hope you are doing well. I just want to laugh about it. I just want to laugh. Just laugh. Good. Um, yeah, so Pussy Riot, uh, if you don't know that story, you should look it up. They, look it up. They were, they were like, two members, I think, of Pussy Riot were sentenced to prison for some two to four years, yeah, for speaking out against uh, Vlad, Vlad mm-hmm. Putin. So you know what, Vlad, you look great, <laughs> topless on a horse, but that's not what makes a leader. 
so just get out of her face. <laughs> God, that was words of wisdom, Jen. God, words that's of wisdom. That was a perfect way to wrap that up. <laughs> just to wrap it up. Just to wrap it up. So I way way. He's such a great guy, and you know what? He's not done. All right, <laughs> he's not done. He's still doing stuff, and it's just as relevant as it ever was. In Florence, Italy, at the Fondazione Palazzo Strozzi. I probably butchered the no, pronunciation. No, that was beautiful. Whatever. Ai Weiwei is currently, currently, as in right now, featured in a retrospective at the Palazzo Strozzi. The Palazzo, which, by the way, the Palazzo is a 15th century Renaissance palace. It belonged to the Strozzi family, who were the rivals of the prosperous Medici. Oh. oh the Medici. If you know anything about Renaissance. Did, the Medi- did they get poisoned by the Medici? I don't know. They probably did. I think they There's did. There's a new Netflix I just saw that. Oh my god. What is it called? It's Medici. Medici. <laughs> what? And it's like a drama, historical drama. I gotta go home and watch it like right now. Right? <laughs> Okay, so the the Medici, however, are not the focus. We're talking about the Strozzi, and the Strozzi <laughs> have the Palazzo, and that is where um, Ai Weiwei is currently installed. He has the first time ever that he has a major uh, retrospective. His retrospective is titled Libero, and... It spans the length of his career from the 1980s to the present day. So at Libero, we get to see various um, installations by Ai Weiwei, many of his Lego portraits, and there are a few portraits of some, like, you know, Renaissance families. And so it's very much, you know, he did a couple works to like accommodate for this very peculiar place that he gets to host his retrospective. It's peculiar because this 15th century Renaissance building, this is the first time that this building has ever been completely opened to one artist to exhibit his works. So the Palazzo is currently featuring Ai Weiwei's works throughout the entire building. And so if you find yourself in Florence, this exhibit's going to be going on until January 22nd. So go check it out. But what I find especially interesting about this exhibit is the installation titled Reframe. So Reframe features 22 rubber boats. These are rubber boats that are red rubber boats that are featured (laughs) along the facade of the palazzo. And these rubber boats are meant to draw attention to the treatment of refugees coming in from Syria and other locations in this Egyptian Middle Eastern area. So, Ai Weiwei, he's still out there drawing attention to this treatment of refugees. He's out there still making political work. And I'm really glad to see that at his retrospective, Ai Weiwei 
is using the location and the fact that he gets to have a retrospective, he's using it to make a poignant political commentary on the fact that there are now this influx of refugees in Europe that are coming over in boats and many of them are perishing along the way or are being turned away. And, and I just think that it's very um, fitting that an artist like Ai Weiwei is making some sort of statement about the current state of affairs. So kudos to Mr. Ai Weiwei for using his first major exhibition to make a very poignant statement on this issue. And that's really how I want to wrap up Mr. Ai Weiwei right now. If you happen to find yourself in the just lucky uh, position to be in Florence, Italy, go Boy, check it out. I, in addition to that, he also brought back 2,400, or sorry, 2,046 articles of clothing from refugee camps that he had visited in Northern Africa. And he visited over 20 camps in that time. And if for any of you who follow him on Instagram or who want to go back and just look at the Instagram posts he's been posting for the last, I mean, six months, maybe longer, he has really like saturated his account with those images. And um, as someone who follows him, in a kind of, you know, realization of our sick world, it seems like a lot of people unfollowed him because of that. Really? Because the likes went down dramatically. Did you over notice that? Yeah. Wow. And I mean, in a way, it's, I mean, it's, it's Instagram culture, I think. If you're flooded with a lot of the same images, I think, you know, people are less inclined to pay attention. Which gets into a whole new issue, but I mean, he's he's not normalizing it. He's just showing the reality. Like he's he's trying to bring to people's attention what is actually happening, and these are real images of real people suffering. But um, yeah. So, but back to the exhibit. He brought all of these articles of clothing back. Not only did he bring them back, but he washed them and ironed them and just you know all around cleaned them for the exhibit and a lot of the associations about him connecting to refugees can be connected back to his early childhood where his father was detained or he was um, exiled for 20 years and detained in a camp mm -hmm. in a prison camp so obviously it makes sense that Ai Weiwei would feel a very strong connection to these displaced people to these people who are stuck in a situation that is less than ideal to put it lightly it is moving to see an artist who's not only just not only making commentary about it but immersing himself in that situation and not to mention he has a young child like he he is kind of sacrificing part of his life to really bring attention to this and to expose himself to it and to expose other people to it. And I think it's pretty incredible. And it's I haven't seen any other contemporary artist involve themselves so heavily. And it's it's a pretty cool thing. No, for sure. He is 
easily the most yeah involved in I don't know stuff that really matters. <laughs> like, yeah, for, he's a you know, true humanist. Like he yeah, really, he really wants to use his place and his placement in his artwork to make statements about mm-hmm. about the state of things. He's aware of his potential to reach a wide audience. Exactly as Natalie was just talking about, he is very alive on Twitter and Instagram. Um, his handle is at. A-I-W-W, so if you don't follow him, you should. If you'd like to learn more about him, watch that documentary on Netflix, it's Never Sorry. Good. It's so good. And, I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff out there about we him. We could go on. We could. Um, we'll post all of our sources for mm-hmm. you and everything. Including um, this New York Times article, which is not super lengthy, but does include a short interview with Ai Weiwei talking about his experience at the refugee camps. Mm-hmm. He's, I mean, and he's widely interviewed. You can find yeah, YouTube him. Oh you God. can find yeah. He's so a content-heavy artist. Oh, he yeah. <laughs> you can find, you can find a lot. If you were you know, inspired by this or interested by this, there are a lot of places to go in regards to Ai Weiwei. But I think... That's really all we have time for right now. So right. hopefully, if nothing else, it planted some seeds. Sunflower some seeds. Some sunflower seeds. <laughs> yeah, hopefully it, it planted some seeds and you'll you'll look further into him because he's, he's pretty legit. Listener mail. We'll do a quick listener mail. Do, do, do. Hi, babes. I love your podcast with three O's in Aww. love. Aww. <laughs> I, I thought it was going to be in podcast. <laughs> I love your pod. <laughs> I majored in art history, but went on to a career removed from that glorious world. Your podcast is brilliant. I sometimes listen, listen during tedious hours at work. I listened to your Memento Mori episode and wanted to share this video, which at least references the question of whether you can preserve a skull. Follow Ask, follow Ask a Mortician on YouTube. She is awesome and can illuminate all sorts of curious death-related questions. Love you, gals. Keep up the good work and general awesomeness, Marie. Marie's a friend of mine from early days of life. Aww. And she's a doll and super smart and awesome. And she sent us this link from the Ask a Mortician uh, YouTube. Which about, we watched. Which we watched. It was and it fantastic. Was, it was amazing. Okay, so Ask a Mortician... <laughs> I just want to say oh, no. that, that that babe, I just love her, and um, I I hope that I get to meet her one day because I think I want to wipe her for real. And also, that video was super interesting, and I got to have my heart broken just a tad bit because apparently you can't just preserve a skull. It's and, a bummer. Oh, it makes me really upset. She left on a hopeful. She did. We might be able to preserve a school in the future. Now I have to break it to my dad (laughs) that... I might not be able to keep his skull in my home after his death. So hopefully he won't take be, it too badly. You guys will figure something out. Yeah, you'll figure it out. I'll um, figure something out, you guys. But yeah, ask a mortician. You're uh, you're the ultimate death babe. We really, really oh enjoyed God. that. She yeah. was so good. She, she was, was great. She's beautiful. She's smart. She's funny. It was great. If you want to be on her show and just talk about death stuff. Oh my God, please. Like, that would be super swell. But thank you, Marie, so much. Thank you, listeners, for listening. 
If you feel so inclined, please write us a review on YouTube. It really makes all the difference in the world. Email us at arthistorybabes at gmail.com if you have any comments, questions, thoughts, want to join in on the fun. You can find us at arthistorybabes.com. We're on iTunes and Google Run Play everything. and SoundCloud, Twitter and SoundCloud, Google Play. I just put us on StumbleUpon and we're on Pinterest. <gasps> I and forgot about StumbleUpon. Oh my god! I put, I try and put us on every possible thing I can think of on Corey's the internet. Corey's a business being. I'm working on it. If you have any other ideas of places where I could put the art history babes, please let us know. Let us know. Um, or just put us there for us. Yeah, really yeah just, do just, do just, just do it. Just do it. Just do it. But thank you for real for listening because this is so much fun for us and we love that it's fun for you. We too. love you. You're great. We love you all. Good night. From Topless on a horse, but that's not what makes a leader. <laughs> <laughs>